Well, if you're a guest of ours, uh, last week we started this series that we're calling Hide or Seek. And uh, we're talking about the fact that it's important for us to be honest with ourselves. Uh, we can't get honest with God, and I think that all of us would say, hey, it's important to be honest with God, and it's important to be honest with other people, but, but we can't be honest with God, and we can't get honest with anybody else until we're first honest with ourselves. And so that's what this series is all about, and we talked about Adam and Eve and how God placed them in the garden, and God gave them freedom, but God gave them one restriction in the midst of the freedom, and that's the one thing they did. They did the thing that God told them not to do, and as soon as they did that, they hid from God. And we've been hiding from God ever since. But God came looking for them when they were hiding, not to pay them back, but to win them back. And so this series is all about being fully honest with ourselves. And we can be fully honest with ourselves because God, he already fully knows us and he fully loves us. And that's the good news of what the local church has to share with the world. That's the good news of the gospel, that God fully knows you and God fully knows me and God yet fully loves me and God fully loves you. And so you and I can be fully honest with ourselves because God fully knows us and God fully loves us. And so the pressure's off. We don't have to play a part. We don't have to wear a mask. We don't have to go into hiding. We can just be honest and we can be honest about what we're hiding from. And as we get honest, we realize that we don't need to stay hidden because God's not angry with us and God's not mad with us, but we can actually seek to be found because we can't be free until we allow ourselves to be found. And so since this series is all about honesty, I thought that, you know, in the second week, it would just be good to start with a good, honest confession. It's true. And the second part of it is really a bit more brutal as far as the truth goes, because I think that if we're going to get honest with ourselves, it's just good to kind of tear up the soil of honesty. And sometimes when we hear some honest statements, sometimes that gives us freedom to be honest about some things that's difficult for us to be honest about from time to time. But here's where I would like for us to start off. Here it is. Life isn't easy. Now, don't look at me like that. Uh, that would be a good place to give me a witness. Life isn't easy. Can I get an amen? Okay, yeah. Uh, for those of you who haven't decided, I, I don't know what planet you're from, but life isn't easy. Now, that doesn't bother us, and we don't even think that that is really that big of a, of a truth because we already know that life isn't easy. Being married isn't easy. Being single isn't easy. Raising children is not easy. Managing finances, not always easy. Being healthy, not always easy. Watching what we eat, not always easy. Watching what we drink, not always easy. Uh, watching what we allow to come into our eyes and what we listen with our ears, not always easy. Life isn't easy. But here's the brutal part. Here's the part that makes us a bit uncomfortable. Life isn't easy, and faith doesn't make it any easier. That's the part that bothers us. That's the great little secret of church people all around the world, especially here in America. It's as though we talked about faith for decades and decades that life isn't easy, but faith makes life easier. And then you became a person of faith, and you know what you discovered? Faith doesn't make life easier. Now, faith may make life better, and I believe that faith in Jesus and following Jesus will make life better because faith, it gives you a new paradigm to experience life, and it gives you a new perspective in which to see life, but faith itself does not make life easier. Life isn't easy, and faith doesn't make life easier. Now, some of you, you signed up for faith, 
and you decided to go ahead and place your trust in Jesus. And part of that was the expectation that faith and Jesus was going to make life easier. And then you found out that wasn't true for you. And you assume it just wasn't true for you because it seemed to be true for everybody else. Because when you looked at them and when you listened to them, it seemed as though faith made their life better. And it seemed as though faith made their life easier. And Jesus made their life easier. But that's not true. That's not true for me. And I guarantee you, for those that are here and those in Somerset and those in Williamsburg and for those watching online, I guarantee you that we all were honest about it. We would say that faith does not make life easier. Makes it better, but not easier. So there's the first bit of honesty. And and the follow-up to that is this. Here's some more honesty. Every one of us has issues. All right? Now, if you have issues, go ahead and raise your hand. Just go ahead and vote. You say, hey, I'm honest enough. I got issues. I got issues. Okay. Some of you don't understand the question. All right? (laughs) Issues. Everyone has struggles. Now, now issues, issues, it's almost vogue to say, oh, I've got issues, you've got issues, we've all got issues. And, and almost in saying it, we, we obfuscate responsibility. It's like, oh, you know, since we all have issues, really none of us have an issue. But you have issues and I have issues and every one of us, we have issues. Uh, we have issues inside the church. We have issues outside the church. Do you know that believers, just like non-believers, we have issues. Everyone has issues and everyone has struggles. So again, I, because I, I want you to get moving, this is the most exercise some of you've had in two weeks. How many of you would just admit you have a struggle? Just, just lift up a hand, struggle. Right? A little, little, little less you know, openness to do that one because we, we want to think in our mind, well, I wonder what the people around us think that we're struggling with. You know, they're going to assume it's really bad, and, and, it, and it's because it probably is. And, and, and so, you know, it's like, oh, I don't want to raise my hand and people think I, and I struggle. I, I don't want them to think I struggle. Well, why not? If you know you struggle and they know you struggle, why does the church not get honest about the fact that we have issues and we have struggles? What happens to us in, in the progress of life is this. We, we come acquainted or come to a place where we're acquainted with our issues and our struggles, and, and we begin to minimize some of them to the point, or we begin to accept some of them to the point that we're able to joke about them, make light of them. And, and we don't even care to share them in front of other people. Like one of the biggest dysfunctions of my life, and I joke about it a lot, and in a way I minimize it, and in a way I try to just look as though I'm outgrowing it or I have outgrown it, but, but it is a big dysfunction for me. And I figure that if I don't get uncomfortably honest in this series uh, about myself, then, then the expectation that we're going to get honest with ourselves in our church, in our faith community, uh, really isn't a reasonable expectation. But, but one of the big dysfunctions of my life has to do with all things doctor and disease. All things doctor and disease. I mean, I am a hypochondriac. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's an issue. It's a problem for me. Um, and, and, and I'm not sure. I've never been diagnosed as a person who has panic attacks. But you, you, you get me thinking that there's something wrong with me. I, I, I don't know if it's what it is or not. But I felt that heat wave start in the bottom of my feet. It goes up through my chest, up through my neck. I feel like, you know, my, my heart is pounding in my head. I feel like, oh, my God, I'm dying. I'm convinced I'm dying. And, and it, is, it is not a fun moment. Now I make you know, a lot of it and I'll even tell stories about where I, where I think it all started. And for me, I think it all started with Allison. I think it's her fault. And, uh, you know, when, when we were dating, uh, back, uh, you know, a long time ago, we're going to be married 17 years, uh, next week. And so we've been together for quite a while. Thank you, both of you. And, uh, so, 
But years and years ago, nearly 20 years ago, I, I, I was probably, at that time, I didn't know about it, I was having uh, kidney stone issues, and, and so it became evident that I needed to go to the doctor. And, and so, you know, I, again, this is uncomfortable for me, but I'm just going to go there, and you're going to pretend it's okay, and we're going to love each other at the end of it. Uh, but I've never had an easy time peeing in a cup. Now, somebody who says it's easy to pee in a cup, I don't know what you're talking about, uh, because you put a cup in front of me, and it's like everything dies. Everything just stops functioning. I don't know what it is. And, and so she knew that I hated doctors for lots of different reasons. And one of those, I never could pee in a cup. And my appointment ended up being four times longer than necessary because I'm the lone guy still sitting in the waiting room with the empty cup waiting for the moment to come. And, and so and there I am. And so she said, well, if you're going to go to the urologist, you know, for this deal, then you just need to drink all the water you can. All the water, you just need to pound it from the time you get up until, until you go to the, to the doctor because then, you know, it'll just, it, it, it'll, it'll, it'll work a lot better that way if you just drink a lot of water. And so, you know, that, that's what I did and I was scared to death. I thought they were gonna tell me that something was really wrong with me, that I was gonna die and all this. So I had all this narrative in my head. And, and, and before I went to the urologist, they sent me to the pathologist or the radiologist rather so that he could do an ultrasound. And I was so nervous. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I, I mean, my heart, I, I was sweating, my, my palm, it, it was just, it was, it's horrible. I don't know if you struggle with this stuff or not. You're looking at me like you have no struggles right now and I felt very exposed. And, and so I feel very vulnerable right now, I don't like it. And, and so, you know, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but, but it's, it's not fun. And, and so I was there and I just knew that he was gonna find like a tumor. I, I just knew that he was gonna pull up something like, oh, you're, you're dying, you're dead, you're basically dead. And, and, and so I was so nervous I, I wasn't even like processing what was happening around me. I couldn't even think. And, and, and so he, he takes, you know, the thing, he's doing the ultrasound. And then he says to me, can you make water? Well, I'd never heard that term before. <laughs> so I'm so anxious. I'm like, well, I know that, you know, an oxygen is connected to two different hydrogen atoms. And, and, and he's like, What? I was like, you know, like making water, H2O. And he's like, no, can you pee? I was like, well, normally, yes. I, I hope not right now. But I, I mean, and so it's just this horrible thing. Then I go, go back to the urologist and, and I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story, but it was really bad. And, and, and it's one thing to have a bad experience with a barber. It's one thing to have a bad experience at the grocery store. It is an entirely different experience to have a bad experience with a urologist. And, and, and to go in and not expect something and then to leave with what you didn't expect to happen happen, it was just bad. And, and so I, I was so torn up. I was so just, I, I just thought I was dead. And, and I've taken it from that moment throughout different times in my life. I, I got another kidney stone later on and called Allison. She was in medical school. She said, oh, you need to come see one of my professors. And I said, okay. And, and, and so while I was there, I went through the whole thing. Is anything else bothering you? And I said, well, I've been a little stuffy lately. And he said, oh, lay down on, on the table. I was like, okay. And, and so I, I laid down on the table and he, he rolled over and he pulled out a glove uh, out of the desk and he grabbed a little tube of stuff and, and, and he, he put some slippery stuff on his pinky. And, and then he proceeded to stick his pinky up my sinuses and down and just left it there. And I'm thinking, how in the name of God in heaven did I get to this moment in my life? Is this some really bad joke? And he's, and he's talking to me and I, it's like his pinky's like next door to my uvula or something. And I'm like, I, I can't talk right now. And, and then he does the same thing on the other side. And afterward he says, can you breathe better? Well, 
Matter of fact, I could, uh, but it was because you just had your hand in my skull, and, and it was horrible, and it seems like I've just had one bad experience with the doctor after the other, and I always get the aggressive doctors, and, and I don't like it. I just don't. It's just it's kind of my dysfunction, and I, I joke about it, and I make a lot about it, but, but when I'm in that moment, when I'm in that season, it, it's, it's just bad. Uh, a couple of Christmas Eves ago, I was preparing the Christmas Eve sermon, and, and I'm telling you all this, not to just tell you stories, but I, I want you to know that we, we all are messed up in some really bad ways, and we can laugh about it, and it's good. There, there's, some, there's some healthiness in that. And we get to the place in life where we, we make you know, a, a minimal thing of it, but when you're in the middle of that dysfunction, I mean, nothing else really, nothing else really matters. It, it's really bad, and I, I, was, I was working on a sermon, it was about 4.15 in the morning, and I yawned, and I was stretching and I itched my arm and, and, and I noticed there was a bump there and, and I'm OC enough, I know that when a bump's been somewhere and when a bump is new and I was like, this is a new bump. And so I went to the bathroom and I, I looked in the mirror and I said, oh God, this is not good, this is bad. And I felt that heat wave and I, I felt my, my respiration getting fast and I, I'd, had a, I'd had a cousin who had had a skin cancer and, and I knew somebody else with skin cancer and I thought, well, this is the bad kind of skin cancer. And I was like, this looks bad. And then I just had to, I had to say, I gotta preach tonight. I gotta, I gotta preach tonight, I, I gotta knock this off. And so I had to go do the whole thing. I'm with my family uh, two nights later and I'm on the couch and Allison, she's in the kitchen with the boys making cookies and she looks in there and says, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? This is like you're a holiday. And, and you're like over there like a zombie. And I said, ah, oh, nothing's wrong with me. She goes, no. You know, she kind of mommed me there for a minute. She's like, no, what's wrong with you? You know, she, and I said, well, you know, I got this bump. And, and she says, roll up your arm. And, and she goes, ah, oh, it's nothing, that's a blood blister. I'm like, how do you know? She's like, I'm a doctor. And I'm like, <laughs> Yeah, maybe, but I don't like doctors. And, and, and it was just, you know, I, I could tell you about, you know, a few nights later when she attacked me with a safety pin and she <laughs> broke it and she had blood coming down my arm. I mean, it, it, I mean it, it's been, it was abusive. And, 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 and I'm still wounded by the whole thing, but she's aggressive. And, and so I could tell you about all those things, but those things are so real to me and, and, and I can joke about it now, but that's, that's like the, the tip of the iceberg. Of dysfunction. I want you to think that's the most dysfunctional I am, but everybody has issues. I have issues. I have struggles. Some of you are thinking, oh my God, who have they let lead this church? He's crazy. Yes, 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 I am. You know, and we have attracted a bunch of crazies. Ergo, there you are. And, and it's like birds of the same feather. They love to flock together. And that's why our church has grown. There's a lot of crazy out in the world, all right? And so here we are. But there's people all around you that are struggling. Some struggle with greed. They don't want to let go of their money. They, they, want to, they just want to hoard and hoard and make and make. Some struggle with greed. Some struggle with lust. Some struggle with envy. Some struggle with anger. Some struggle with insecurity. Some struggle with pornography. There, there's all kinds of issues and struggle going on around you. But here's the thing. Not every one of us looks like we do. See, that's where the church got off the rails because we clean up well. And the church taught us how to do that. Once upon a time, many of us grew up in a generation of church where you put on your Sunday best, right? Remember that, your Sunday best? Put on your Sunday best, that means you dressed on Sunday like you didn't dress any other day of the week. So it was already a psychological thing building for us. So we dressed on Sunday like we didn't dress at any other time of the week. And we fought each other as we were putting our Sunday best on. We had to find Sunday best, it went missing. 
from last Sunday to this Sunday, Sunday best, we can't find it. It's stained. Somebody didn't wash the Sunday best. And so people are yelling to each other about their Sunday best. And then you get in the car, you put on your Sunday best smile because you don't smile like that any other day of the week as a family. You show up to church, you walk in, you look like a great, great family. But yet, you know you're not a great family. And the people that greeted you, they know you're really not a great family because they know their family. But yet we learn to play these roles and we learn to wear these masks. And the sermons were about the dysfunctional people outside the church and not about the dysfunctional people inside the church. And church people and non-church people began to believe that church was for neat and tidy people whose lives were neat and tidy, marriages neat and tidy, finances neat and tidy. But the church was not for messy people. Now, if you're here today and you feel like a mess, if you feel like a financial mess, an emotional mess, if you feel like a spiritual mess, if you just feel like a mess, what you need to know is you are around a bunch of other people who are a mess themselves. Some of the people around you, they are a mess themselves. Some of them married a mess. Matter of fact, they were warned not to marry the mess, but they married the mess anyway. And 32 years later, they're still a mess. Some of those around you, they married into a family of mess. Their in-laws seemed sane from a distance. But when they brought you in, you realize these people are crazier. They're, they're nuts. And, and there you are. You married into crazy. Some of you are parenting a mess. Some of you are getting parented by a couple of messes. There's just mess all around you. There's mess all around all of us. That's why we talk about our church as the perfect place for imperfect people. Now, I say that to make this point. Messy people follow Jesus. Messy people follow Jesus. That's the only type of people that follow Jesus. Because everybody is messy. Life is messy because people are messy. And here's the thing, because this, this gets us to where I want to talk to us and land this plane. Mess is the great equalizer. Mess is our common ground. You may not have anything else in common with me. You may not like what I read. You may not like what I listen to. You may not like how I dress. You may not like my hobbies. You, you may not like anything about me. But the one thing that you and I can find common ground on is mess. The one thing that those of you who are sitting side by side, those of you in Somerset, those of you in Williamsburg, the thing that makes our church in three locations, the great common ground is, is the mess. Your mess, my mess, our mess. And the gospel is this, that our mess, your mess, my mess, did not make God want to step away. It actually caused God to want to step in. And God stepped into the mess with us in order to lead us out of the mess. And this is the thing that, this is worth your trip here today. This, this, is, this is what you need to remember. The mess is often the meeting place where we encounter God. Mess becomes the place where I experience God. Mess becomes the place where I meet God. Mess becomes the place where I have a brand new, fresh encounter with God. Mess is not the thing that I need to avoid to find God. Mess is the very thing that will make God find me. That's the mess of life. Your mess, my mess. You have heroes, I have heroes. Matter of fact, one of my heroes, he's going to be here tonight at 6 o'clock. I want you to be here. I want you to hear from my pastor. But nobody's perfect. Even our heroes aren't perfect. Our lives are messy just like our heroes. And especially and specifically for the sake of the conversation today, for heroes of faith that we find in the Scripture, their lives are messy. Now, we like to clean them up, and we like to sanctify them a little bit and romanticize it a bit, but I'm telling you, 
You talk about dysfunction, you talk about messy people, you find messy people all in the scriptures. And the guy that I wanna to talk to you about today, he, he was a mess. Though when we're introduced to him, we don't know that he's a mess. Just like sometimes when we meet each other, we don't know that we're a mess, but, but this guy was a mess and we just didn't know it and he didn't know it until he hit the wall. He didn't know that he was a mess until the bottom fell out. His name is Elijah and he's gonna teach us a big lesson and here's the lesson that Elijah's gonna teach us. How we look on the outside is rarely a good indicator of how we are on the inside. You, you can dress to the nines. You can come in to, to the church parking lot in a great car. Your, your kids can be fashionable, your kids can be smart, your kids can seem like their social skills you know, are as good as anybody in their peer group. I mean, from the outside looking in, you can have a great job. Your kids can be on the starting five. Your daughter made the cheerleading squad, they're on the academic team. From, from the outside, it looks as though things are good. But how things are on the outside is rarely a good indicator of how things are on the inside, and that's what Elijah teaches us. We pick up his story in 1 Kings chapter 19. It says, now Ahab told Jezebel. Now Jezebel was a nice little peach of a woman. <laughs> Jezebel, there's a reason why parents don't name their daughters Jezebel. And I always feel compelled to say this. If you happen to be here and your name is Jezebel, I'm sorry. Not for what I just said. I'm sorry that your parents did that. I'm sorry for whatever they were thinking or not thinking, but Ahab told Jezebel, his wife. Now, Ahab was the most wicked king in the northern kingdom. He, he was an assassin. He was an idolater. He was just a wicked man. Jezebel was from Phoenicia. She had imported her false gods into Israel. And so Israel was now worshiping the god of fertility, Baal, and his mother, Asherah. And so there was a whole false god cult going on in Israel. It's bad times. And what has happened up until this moment looks like Elijah's greatest days. All that's happened up to this point, Elijah looks like he's at the height of his career. Elijah looks like nothing could be better. It started back in chapter 17. He walks into the court of Ahab and he declares it's not going to rain until he says so. That was a big day for him. That was a big win for him. That was bold. That was courageous. That was audacious. But when he walked into Ahab's court that day and said what he said, here's what I want you to know. There was an emotional price tag to it. There was a psychological price tag to it. He was paying a price for doing what he did and he didn't even know it. Some of you, the life that you're living, the pace that you're at, your extracurriculars that don't have to be your extracurriculars, all the things that you've invited onto your plate, they are costing you and you don't even know it. People in ministry, this guy's in ministry. This guy walks in, he's doing the bidding of the Lord. And he says, it's not gonna rain until I say so, but it's costing him something. He's losing a little bit of himself along the way and he doesn't know it. And when we're reading in chapter 17, we don't know it either. After he leaves Ahab, he goes to a place called Cherith or Kareth. And there God's gonna let him drink from a brook even though there's a famine in the land and God's gonna send birds and feed him meat in the morning and the evening even though there's a famine in the land. These are the best days of his life. These are the days you brag about. These are the days you write books about. This is like he is at the top of his game. Things could not get better. It seems as though things could not get easier. But even while he's drinking from a brook and birds are feeding him, there's something going on inside of Elijah psychologically. There's something going on in Elijah emotionally that he doesn't know is happening. 
And matter of fact, we as the readers, as we're reading it in chapter 17 and on into chapter 18, we don't see it either. Because oftentimes when we get emotionally unhealthy, when we get psychologically unhealthy, when we become mentally ill, we don't find out until the bottom falls out. We don't realize it until we hit the wall. Elijah is becoming mentally ill, but who would think it? He's in the best days of his career. He's in the best days of his life. He's getting fed by birds from heaven. Any of you got fed by birds from heaven? Didn't think so. It's a big day for him. From there, he goes to a place called Zarephath, and he has this miraculous encounter with a widow. And she says, I've got a little flour and a little oil, and me and my son, we're going to take a few sticks, and we're going to bake this last loaf of bread, and we're going to eat it, and we're going to die. And Elijah says, no, you're not. You're going to give me that piece of bread, and then you're going to go back, and God's going to give you more flour and more oil, and you'll never be without flour, and you'll never be without oil, because God's going to take care of you if you take care of me. I mean, this, this, is, this is the stuff legends are made of. But we can't see what's happening. Because you can be functioning while also becoming dysfunctional. I can be functioning while at the same time, internally, I'm becoming dysfunctional. And this is what we see happening. He goes from Zarephath to Mount Carmel and he shows 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, whose God is God. He called down fire from heaven. But there was a price tag to it. There's some things happening. And while everybody's celebrating, something's going on inside of Elijah. And maybe some of you feel that way. While everybody else around you celebrating the good, the profits are up, the shares are up. Hey, they scored 25 points. Hey, they got all A's. Hey, I got that promotion. Hey, we got a 10% raise this year. And while you're celebrating and the people around you are celebrating all of that, maybe there's something going on that you've not been paying attention to. Because there was something going on up to this point that Elijah had not been paying attention to. And so Ahab told Jezebel, and it says, so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow, I do not make your life like one of them. In other words, Jezebel said, hey, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to wipe you out. There's a hit on you. Now, again, he's having the best days of his life. These are the days you dream about. But this woman says, I'm going to kill you. And Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Now, I've preached this passage before. I've heard other people preach this passage before. And this is the place where we talk about fear and we talk about, man, where did that come from? Where where did that show up from? And we act as though it just showed up in the moment. It didn't show up just in the moment. There have been some things going on in Elijah's head. There's been some things going on in Elijah's heart. There's been some unhealthiness going on in Elijah's soul. That in this moment, the crack got big enough that some stuff started to surface that had been there the whole time. He was afraid. This man who was so bold and courageous, he's afraid. This man who had raised a widow's son from the dead, he's afraid. This man who got fed by birds from heaven, he's afraid. There's an emotional shift in his equilibrium. It's already been volatile. 
It's already been happening below the surface. How do you know that? Because things like this, they just don't happen. They started before this point. And let me tell you what Elijah does, and this is why the scriptures are so relevant to every aspect of life. Elijah hands over his emotional health, his psychological health. He, handles his, he hands over his emotional well-being to another person. And let me tell you, when you decide and I decide, whether consciously or unconsciously, knowing or not knowing, to hand over our emotional health to another person and the well-being over to another person, we're playing a dangerous game. For some of you, you're either up or down depending on your spouse because you've given your spouse control over your emotional health. Some of you, you're either up or down somewhere in the middle based on how your children are because you've handed to your son or to your daughter power over your emotional health, over your mental health. For some of you, it's a coworker. You've handed over your mental health, the status of your mental health, your mental well-being, your psychological well-being. You've handed it over to another co-worker. That is a dangerous game to play. For some of you, you give it to your mother, you give it to your father, you give it to a brother, you give it to a sister, you give it to a friend. You give it to culture. Some of you, you have given the keys to your mental health to cable news. Now, if you want to get honest about things, I think that cable news may be one of the worst things that have happened to our country in the past 25 years. Because nobody can get away from it. The politicians can't get away from it. So they're always playing their role. And we're always watching it. So they have to play their role. And news is selling. News is selling. And it's big business. So you got to make sure that you got a story that's bad enough that people want to listen and feel like they need to listen. And there's a whole generation of Americans that have handed over their psychological health to cable news. You're up or down based on whether you're listening to Fox News or CNN. If it's Fox, you're feeling good about yourself, but the world's going to hell in a handbasket. You're listening to CNN... You're right, and everybody else is going to hell in a handbasket, and they're wrong. It's just wherever you are, you give your health over. It's a dangerous game to play. That's what, it's what he did. He handed it to Jezebel. It says, when he, Elijah, came to Beersheba because he left Carmel, Mount Carmel, to go to Beersheba about 100 miles away, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness because when our mental illness begins to become <coughs> wounded, when our mental health becomes unstable, when depression seeps in, depression always seeks isolation. That's, that's the first instinct of depression is to, to want to be alone. And to be alone doesn't make things easier. And it doesn't make things better in those moments, but he decides that he's going to go hide in the wilderness. He's just going to go hide from it all. He's going to hide from Jezebel because in his mind, she's the problem. She, he's just going to go where no one else is. He's not going to listen to it. He's not going to be bothered by it. He's going to go into hiding. It's what we do. So his mental health is at stake here. And the first thing he wants to do is leave everybody behind and be by himself. That is a terrible idea when you're in a moment like this. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that what? He might die. Now, We've heard this, and we just roll past it, but we should roll past because 
If this was the narrative about your brother, if this was a narrative about your sister, if this was a narrative about your mother or your father or your best friend or somebody that you work with that you love dearly, and you found out that they wanted to die, do you know how you'd feel? Do you, do you, can you imagine if you found your diary of your son or daughter and in it, it talked about, I want to die? Now let that emotion hit you for a moment and sit with that emotion because here is a man who wants to die, a high achiever who wants to die, a successful man who wants to die, a man with big faith who wants to die. Feels like a pretty big deal. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And again, let's be honest, this didn't come out of nowhere. This just didn't happen. This may not be the first time he's ever thought this. This may not be the first time he's ever entertained this way of thinking. Here is a suicidal prophet. Do you know what this is? This is mental illness in the scripture. This is mental illness in the life of a man of God. This is mental illness in the life of the prophet of God. This is mental illness in the life of a person with big faith. This isn't healthy and this isn't normal. This is illness. See, depression doesn't make sense to us if we're looking from the outside in. That's the way depression works. Somebody said that depression is a rumor until it becomes reality. That is to say you can read about it, you can try to learn about it, but it's just kind of a rumor until you feel it. Somebody who suffered from lifelong clinical depression said that it's like someone whispering on my shoulder all the time, feeding me deadly poison. Another person with clinical depression said, you know what, I could show you a gash when I'm injured. I could show you a bruise. I could show you if my eye were swollen. I could show you a broken bone. But, but to try to show you my depression, to try to tell you about my depression, to try to tell you about my mental illness is like trying to describe someone else's dream with someone else's tongue. Here's what other people say about it. I didn't want to wake up. Some of you, you know what this feels like. For some of you, this is your life. This is your story. I didn't want to wake up. I was having a much better time of sleep. And that was really sad. It was almost like a reverse nightmare. Like when you wake up from a nightmare, you're so relieved. But I woke up into a nightmare. Tonya Brassell in her book said, sometimes it's heavy. Sometimes depression's heavy. It's like you're carrying an elephant. Sometimes it's dark. You wonder if you'll ever see light. Sometimes it's bleak. You'll wonder if you'll make it through. And some days there are no words to describe it. Longfellow, he said this, he said, every man has his secret sorrows. You, me, us, we all have our secret sorrows, which the world knows not. And oftentimes they call us cold when we are only sad. Depression isn't about how much faith you have. Mental illness is not about how much faith you have. The church has talked about mental illness almost in the sense that it's spiritual, and there is a spiritual element to be talked about. But it's not about getting more faith. It's not about having more faith, that the more faith you get, that in some way it's going to deal with it. No, it's a mental illness. It's an illness. Our bodies get sick. Our hearts get sick. Our minds get sick. Our thoughts get sick. Mental illness is not a choice. Mental illness is not a sin. Mental illness does not always look the way we think that it will look. Do you know that depression is the number one cause of disability around the world? 
And for some of you, when you think about disability, you've already got a political mindset about it, and you're like, oh, you know, people, they milk the system. Well, that may be true. Some people may milk the system, but let's don't let people who milk the system cause us not to understand that there is very much a big problem when it comes to depression and mental illness in this country. Approximately one in five Americans have a mental illness. One in five. One in five. One in 25 experience a serious mental illness. One in five children, parents, one in five children ages 13 to 18 have mental illness. 70% of children who are in the juvenile justice system have a mental illness. Only 41% of adults who have a mental illness actually receive treatment for it. Suicide is now the second leading cause of death Second leading cause of death among people ages 10 to 34 in this country. The second leading cause of death. Our church has been affected by suicide. In recent weeks, affected by suicide. Over the past 10 years, multiple times by suicide. Suicide is up 36% in the state of Kentucky. We've had one of the biggest jumps in suicide in all the other states. One in 12 college students, one in 12 college students have a suicide plan. Feels like something we ought to talk about. Feels like something that we ought not to act as though it doesn't exist inside the walls of a local church. 90% of suicides are connected to mental illness. Every three days, a child under 13 commits suicide. Every 40 seconds, there's a suicide. Mental illness, it's not your fault. Depression, it's not your fault. Thinking what you're thinking, it's not your fault. And if you find yourself understanding how Elijah felt, if you find yourself maybe thinking what Elijah said, if you find yourself being, I think I'm in the same place, don't stay hidden. Don't stay hidden. Let yourself be found. Be honest about it. Talk to someone. Talk to a professional. Talk to a parent. Talk to a pastor. Talk to a teacher. Talk to a professor. Don't stay hidden. Don't be afraid to say, I'm struggling with this. Every once in a while, I think about this. You're not alone. You're not gonna be the last. You weren't the first. It says, then he laid down under the, the bush and he fell asleep. And at once an angel touched him and said, hey, get up and eat. Get up and eat. And he looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water and he ate and drank and then laid down again. He's physically exhausted. His physical exhaustion is affecting his emotional health because the two are connected. Some of you... You make excuses for your physical health. You make excuses for why you don't take care of yourself. And you have no idea, not only the physical toll that you are paying, but also the emotional toll that you're paying. And perhaps even the emotional toll of those around you and what they're paying. Because sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take care of your body. Sometimes it's the best thing you can do. So we got up. 
And he was strengthened by that food and he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into the cave and he spent the night and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. See, that's how you feel. It's how I feel. It's how we all feel from time to time. We're the only one. Nobody else understands what it's like to be me. Nobody else understands what I'm having to deal with. Nobody else understands where I've been. Nobody else understands what I've, what I've seen. Nobody else understands what I've heard. Nobody else understands. I'm the only one. And it's all on my shoulders. That's where he was. And if I go down, it all goes down. And the Lord said, go out. Stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. There was a fire and there was an earthquake and God wasn't in either of those. But then there was a whisper. There was a whisper. And there was God. How Elijah felt was not what was real. Our emotions are a terrible gauge of what reality is. Have you ever thought somebody was mad at you? You convinced yourself somebody was mad at you and then you talked to them and you found out, oh, they're not mad at me. You can convince yourself that something is true that's not true. He felt like things were true that were not true. And God whispered, come out of that cave, Elijah. Stop hiding, Elijah. Come out. Come on. Yeah, but Lord, I gotta get this together first. I gotta, I gotta get this cleaned up. I, I, gotta, I gotta deal with this. I gotta fix this. I gotta man up. I gotta woman up. I gotta just, I just gotta pull myself by my, by my bootstraps. No, 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 no. Elijah, mess and all. Come out of that cave. You see, our mess is the place where God meets us. Right in the middle of the mess, that's where God was. Right in the midst of the discouragement and the depression and the suicidal thoughts. Right there in the midst of it. That's where God wants to meet us. We just have to stop hiding and come out of the cave. Things may not get easier, but they can get better. Your mess is the place where God wants to meet you. So come out of that cave. Some of you need to get honest. You're thinking like Elijah was thinking. Some of you are so depressed and so discouraged and so full of anxiety. You're turning to different things. You're turning to different people. Come out of that cave and just get honest. Get honest with you. God already knows it. He fully knows and he fully loves. So come out of that cave and be honest about it. And in just a moment at all of our campuses, we're going to have pastors standing down front. And if you're here and you're struggling, this is a safe place to struggle. This is a safe place to be honest. This is a safe place to come out of the cave with all of your mess, with all the baggage, with all of it. And just say, hey, I need some help. I'm struggling. And you don't have to go into detail. But just to say, hey, I'm struggling and I need some help. Will you pray with me? Will you help me take the next step? 
because I don't want to stay in the back of this cave by myself because I'm afraid of what might happen. So just as you are in all the mess, come on out of the cave. Come out of the cave. Stop hiding because he wants to meet you in the mess. Heavenly Father, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. God, in all of our churches, Holy Spirit, show up in this moment. Holy Spirit, give us courage to be honest. Holy Spirit, give us the desire to reach out. Heavenly Father, let us hear your whisper that says, come out of the back of that cave. Because I'm out here. And I need you to come out here and meet me. And we'll meet each other right in the middle of all of it. God, I pray that we be honest with ourselves. Some of us have struggled for our lives with depression and discouragement. And we thought we were weak and we thought something was wrong with us. And we thought that we should just get over it. But God, we've not been able to get over it. And maybe it's time we need to reach out to say, I need help. Honesty is where freedom begins. And God, let it begin in this place, in this moment. In Jesus' name. May people feel comfortable reaching out for help this morning. I pray. Amen. Let's stand together. If you need to come, if you just want to grab one of our pastors by the hand to say, hey, I need help, just pray for me. I'd encourage you to step out.